0: Finally, a podcast about civics education, said no one ever, until now. This is The Civics Factor, exploring what democracies need to actually solve our problems. This is The Civics Factor, and this is your host, Mark McGinnis. So,
1: welcome to The Civics Factor, I'm Mark McGinnis. My guest today is James Hogan, distinguished public relations expert whose list of organizations he's helped from governments to global companies and whose work in crisis management has earned him numerous awards. Jim is the author of three books, one of which I've dog-eared and marked up, titled I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. Mr. Hogan, thank you for sitting with me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, your work is important. Um, so I'm gonna to try to break it up into a few parts about why public discourse is important to know how the public square is polluted and to what consequence and what we can do to navigate our way out of this. To start with some basics for listeners, how would you define the public discourse and the public square?
0: So for me, um, part of this process goes back to when I was in law school, actually at UVic. I went to law school at UVic, my wife and I did. And I remember in first year, realizing uh, just how pervasive uh, laws work, regulations. I mean, it pretty much, you know, it doesn't really matter what aspect of our lives that we look at. There's, there's laws and regulations that kind of guide our behavior. And, you know, whether it's how, what we can do to the environment, uh, how fast we can drive on the road, uh, how we vote. There are, you know, we have a criminal code that People can be thrown in jail for breaking laws, and and companies can be fined huge amounts of money for um, for breaking uh, regulations for not following regulations. Anyway, so so what I realized was how the process worked. That we have these laws; they're kind of all pervasive, and they come from uh, political decisions, which happen in the midst of public discourse about what is kind of good for us and what's bad for us and so the public square is that place where we have these kinds of conversations about um, public policy so uh, for example what should we do about climate change Um, what should we do about masks you know should we shut businesses down when we have a pandemic um you you know what our labor code looks like what human rights are what discrimination is what like all of there's like there's so many of these laws and regulations that kind of structure the society we're in and we the, the ability to have a conversation about these things is kind of what makes democracy to have a collective conversation. And I think, uh, you know, years ago I used to feel, and I, and I, I think I still do, that one of the biggest problems is when people become, um, are, are not engaged enough. They're sort of disinterested. And, uh, a lot of, we end up getting a lot of bad public policy, um, uh, because, uh, people aren't paying attention. People aren't demanding people aren't participating. And so you want to, people, we we want people to bother. We want people to care. We want, in fact, I think we want more vigorous public discussion and debate. What we don't want is that kind of public debate that undermines democratic principles and the rights uh, of, of our fellow citizens. We don't want that kind of Darth Vader, Approach to politics and public relations to to kind of undermine uh, democratic principles, and so I became uh, when I was asked onto the board of the David Suzuki Foundation. I, eventually, I became chair. I was on the board for almost twenty years, and I found myself right in the middle of all these uh, national, sometimes international, debates and conversations about you know what we should do about species extinction what we should be doing about the destruction of uh, marine ecosystems, what we should be doing about a, a warming planet. And I, and I remember watching it and thinking like, how is you know, why is it we're spending so much time listening to each other shout rather than listening to what the evidence is trying to tell us? Like, why is it that, why are these kind of uh, fake scientists and kind of like really even kind of fake debates about whether or not climate change is real? You know, for decades that went on, you know, that people were, people were claiming that it was a hoax. In fact, you know, there's a guy who's the president of the United States who claims it was climate change is like a hoax by the Chinese, right? So where does, so I'm looking at that and wondering, it, it, it seemed to me that there was something different about it. It wasn't like somebody was actually um, really giving an opinion. It wasn't some, like somebody was making an argument. It wasn't like they were trying to persuade me. it was it was something else, right? And so I became fascinated in 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 the problem of propaganda and what that does to our ability to have uh, healthy public conversations. and how propaganda, what what propaganda actually was and how it's created. These high levels of tribalism and polarization so that, you know, facts and evidence really don't matter the way they may may have, you know, even 20, 30 years ago. Right. So today we live in a public square where it's more important whose side you're on than how much evidence you have behind what you're saying. And you really things don't work like that right you basically you essentially drive um you essentially shut the public square down you you know and i realize you know just like you can pollute the natural environment you can pollute the public square you can pollute public conversations you can create a state of unyielding one-sidedness so that people don't think they don't listen and that has a terrible effect on public policy
1: I want to take a moment and talk to you about opinions. I want to let you know that it is okay to change your opinions without having to change your identity, because what is an opinion? An opinion is like a snapshot in time of the judgment you had with the information you had at the time. And it's okay to change your opinions. If you've been confronted even by people you don't like with information that supersedes the information you had when you made that opinion, when you formed that opinion. As responsible citizens in a constructive democracy, we have to accept that nobody has a monopoly on the truth or the evidence. And if we can have that humility in understanding what an opinion is, then we can change our opinions without it being such a hit to our egos. And maybe if we did that, we wouldn't have so much political deadlock in our countries. And if we did that, maybe our politics would be more constructive than what it is now. You know, there's that line that opinions are like, everyone's got one. Well, opinions are like everyone's got one and it's our responsibility to make sure we don't have a one which is why i'm happy to announce my partnership with tushy the makers of a bidet attachment for your toilet say goodbye to toilet paper say goodbye to hemorrhoids bidets are the future especially when toilet paper supplies are running direly low for no good reason. Be civilized. Get a tushy. Don't use wet wipes. They're terrible for the environment. Get a tushy. Go to hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order. That's hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order.
0: You're listening to the Civics Factor with Mark McGinnis.
1: So actually I do want to ask you what what is your definition of propaganda?
0: Good question. I um so so for me um certainly propaganda is the heart of propaganda is disinformation and misinformation. So there are people who unconsciously consume and spread false information. That is part of propaganda. But there are also people who knowingly um Create disinformation, so they're essentially lying you know they know they're they're, they're they're people and usually they're people in the upper echelons of political uh, discourse who are advisors to politicians and politicians uh, industry leaders, people who are essentially have a problem like the oil and gas industry is a very good example of it you know the oil and gas industry has a terrible problem, and that is its product warms the planet and the more honest conversation you have about it, the more everybody will start to believe, which we mainly do now, most of us, that it we need to move away from this quickly. Uh, it's the same with tobacco, right? And so the, these industries and these political ideologies that are kind of in trouble tend to lean towards propaganda. And so part of it is the disinformation, the misinformation, but really the core of it is tribalism. If I can convince you that this isn't something people like us believe and if you do believe this, you can't be one of us, you must be one of them. If I can convince you in that that climate change is a tribal threat. If if I can convince you, we're not talking about science. We're not talking about climate change science we're actually talking about a threat to your freedom uh then you will start to believe um it's almost like you you start to use a different part of your brain that you you use the fight or flight part of your brain the kind of the the sort of uh uh reptilian part of your brain more than the than the thinking part of your brain and and you're in a fight and in that where you basically have someone feeling under threat, in that state, people become resist resistant to facts and to evidence. So you can't have a conversation. So essentially, you shut the public square down by tribalizing it through propaganda. So propaganda is basically misinformation, disinformation, and tribalism.
1: The role of expert in society. Uh, how do we know and how do we defer to what an expert is?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. There was one of the one of the fellows that I interviewed for my book was, uh, teaches uh, at Yale Law School. <clears throat> and he's uh, not only a lawyer, but a social scientist. named His name is Dan Kahan. And he works on this, this um, um, what he calls us, he calls it the social pathology of um, um, cultural cognition. So this idea that when, that I will adjust, Evidence that contradicts the values and the views of my tribe or my group my community To suit my beliefs rather than changing my beliefs Just to suit the evidence That's kind of contradicting what I believe, right? So he's he says that we have this um, Social pathology around a whole bunch of issues where you you essentially change reality to suit your beliefs, and you become impervious to any kind of new ideas, right? And and that's why he calls it a, a social pathology. And so he what he said was that that his his view of experts is so. Imagine you had like a hundred people in a room, and uh, you wanted to know i don't know something about the best laptop to get or maybe maybe it's a mathematical problem so we have a mathematical problem it's handed out to all 100 people and we we know from research that maybe about 20% of people are kind of mathematically literate enough to take data and sort of think through what you know beyond what's on the surface of the mathematical information that they're given so everybody gets this sheet that explains some kind of study or something and has this data on it. He says that there'll be about 15 to 20% of people who know how to interpret that data. What the other 80% of people know how to do is how to find those 20%. And so that human beings are not like, you don't need to to study medical texts to pick a good doctor. We have a sort of a you know in a, in a specialized society we all have our little niche of expertise and 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 then we have this other uncanny ability to be able to identify who we uh, who we think knows what they're talking about now what he says is that when things become highly polarized open minded thinkingness and our ability to even recognize what's true Um, interferes with that process and that's the kind of social pathology that we find ourselves in today so it's not so much that it's a problem with experts or our even our ability to figure out who knows what we're talking about it's more we it's harder to do that when everything is so highly polarized that the real question is whose side are you on not who's right who's wrong you know how do we figure this out It's, it's not even about that anymore
1: right yeah, I mean, I kind of wish it's possible to, I don't know, it, I, I mean, the line I come back to, is like, it's easier to fool people than to convince people they've been fooled. And I think there's like, the, there's such an artificialness to some of the debates that people are are having, like the, the I, I, I mean, there's a whole industry of consultants and, and political operatives that are trying to be on the cutting edge of uh, propaganda science and marketing science and political marketing. Um, that they know what kinds of frames to give people. And, and those kinds of frames, especially if they're put out over uh, social media, which I've described before, it's like that that has become the public square in so many ways. Right. Um, it's now increasingly, and, and now over 50% for Americans, where they're getting their news, which itself is an, an incredibly uh, algorithmically done and, and um, is, is uh, deliberately targeted in, in some ways, um, to further split people in their media bubbles and their um, information silos and their understanding. So all they're doing is bumping up against one another who are agreeing with one another, getting information sources from biases. And their view and opinion of like the broad public square is like, well, everybody is in it for themselves and everybody has a media bias or something. And it's like, we're moving. We're not able to solve our issues if if this is, I guess, people's broad understanding of it. So, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, there's, there's some, there's something that we could, I guess, do to cut through that a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I come at this weirdly, you know, this not on purpose, like I would much rather be like teaching skiing or something. Right. But I found myself in the midst of this kind of curious journey, looking at polluted public discourse and, um, you know, one of the things that I think is important is that there are facts, there is evidence, there is common sense, there is thinking, and we do have the ability to to figure out the truth from what's false or uh, science from propaganda. There, there is a difference. And we, we certainly have the ability to figure out who knows what they're talking about. <clears throat> and I think that there's a, you know, one of the things I was trying to do early on in the book naively, I was trying to sort of paint this picture of how Advocates for for doing something about climate change were very similar, you know, except on the other side of, of Opponents to doing something about climate change that they were both kind of causing this mess hmm. and I, so I, I kept looking for examples of what people in the environmental community were doing and whatever. And, and what I found was that it, that's not true. I mean, <laughs> what, what is true is that the dark side of, of misinformation around climate and environment mainly comes from extreme right wing and industry sources. What people who are advocating for change and scientists who are advocating, so it's not just environmentalists, also scientists, who are advocating for change. What The mistake they make is not that they are equally mistaken to the person who's denying the climate change, right? So it's not like a, an equal playing field where one side is a little bit right and the other side is a little bit right and, you know, we all have to get together and work things out. None like that. The, the The mistake that advocates make is they fall into something that uh, Roger Connor, who's one of the guys in my book, calls the advocacy trap. And that happens when, so I take a position on, you know, I say, I say, look, we got to do something about climate change. It's destroying our oceans and somebody disagrees with me. And I, and uh, and so I try to correct them. You know, they say it's not happening. And I try to correct them. I spend all this time trying to correct them. I show them all this stuff and everything, and they still disagree with me. So I start to think, well, they're not just wrong. They're actually up to something. I become suspicious of their motives. I start to question their motives, and before we know it, I, you're not just a wrongdoer you or, or you're not just wrong. you're a wrongdoer're you're, you're, you're sort of it's like a, a battle between good and evil it's not a It's not a debate between right and wrong and evidence and all that. And so the advocacy trap is this thing where you basically you become so angry at the other side that that sort of that tribal reaction becomes more beating and dis- and demolishing that person on the other side of the issue, even humiliating them or getting them to admit that they're wrong becomes as important, if not more important than the whole climate change thing to begin with. So, so the advocacy trap can, can contribute self-righteousness and anger can uh, be just as polarizing as denial and Darth Vader intentions. And so that's why I think that we need to, that you need to be aware of these polarizing feelings. When, when people are playing around with fear and anger, that is the mechanism for make creating this division. So the job is not merely just getting the correct information out. In fact, that it's, that's only, that's a small part of the job. Um, the job is actually rebuilding community. The, it's, it, if, if propaganda is dividing people, the, the sort of, the, the immunization to that, the kind of cure for that is pulling people together. And we're, you know, that we're all in this together and trying to counter that division and realizing that even if you're right, you can be just as you could even be a, a bigger divider, because I'm right. I feel self-righteous, so it's not enough for you to admit you're wrong. I want you to do it on the front page of the paper and be down on one knee and what you know. So it's kind of like imperialistic, right? And and it's easy to be like that when you're right about something,
1: right? <laughs> well, that's that um that, that tribalism thing, and I, and I kind of want to connect uh, a couple points here because there's a there's actually another part, um, I don't know if it was in that chapter, but uh, uh, the imagery of a pyramid of of choices, and I think it was Tavris and uh, Brunson or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pick two people that could be good friends, and they're at this top of the pyramid, and they just, they choose, you know, I'm going to go this way, I'm going to go this way, and then they make these choices, and all further down, they actually start, you know, diverging further and further, and they're having to kind of justify every step of the way, and it becomes even more, I guess, heated or or even uh, hostile um, with one another, because nobody, there's a bit of an attachment to to ego, an attachment to like your sense of self. And and, um, nobody wants to think that they're an antagonist. Nobody wants to think that they're wrong. um, And nobody wants to be an idiot. But I think what people do is they just, uh, they read their sense of self and their identity into it. And people fight a lot harder for their egos than they would for an opinion that they know they could be wrong and uh, uh, know that an opinion I think is fallible. Um, but I don't think we teach people enough, and that's kind of like that that I mean we're we're talking also about how to counter some of this, but it's also we can create more resiliency. like we we know so much more now with with these studies about how uh, disagreements can be destructive and escalatory, and we also know how we can engage in conversations and dialogue in a de-escalatory way so that we can find more common ground that we can we can talk about how we have shared values but we see it differently and um you know how important is it that there is a, an element of doubt in public discourse
0: i think that if you can't be wrong and that's the whole that i mean that i'm the book uh, mistakes were made but not by me by carol tavaris uh, that's what that's about this idea that um it's hard for people to admit they're wrong particularly if they take positions publicly. And so the more you invest in something, the more difficult it is for you to see yourself as being wrong. Uh, And if it's something really stupid or something kind of bad, people see themselves as smart and good and and on the right side of things. And they don't, the, the the, the cognitive dissonance, that feeling that comes along when you realize you may have done something really evil or terrible or, stupid um and it's all public it's that's super hard right so people resist it and so it's not it, it isn't possible to actually e- i believe even think and it's certainly impossible to have a conversation with someone else if you're res- super resistant to being wrong being you know i i used to teach skiing and the worst student is the student that doesn't understand that making mistakes is part of learning, right? So they, they if they don't, you, you try to show them something and they don't get it. And instead of kind of moving on from, you know, that not getting it being, oh, okay. I, you know, and you try something new, they beat themselves up for not getting it. And so they end up getting caught in this little kind of spot where you interrupt the learning and the education process just because you, I don't know, whatever it is, self-confidence or whatever. But being being right and being wrong are part of the process of thinking and learning, right? And so sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but that is what you're doing, right? So if you, if you all of a sudden are going to freak out about the fact that you're wrong, then you're going to just, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're just treading water. You're not moving forward anymore, right? And so so this process of Knowing in the back of your mind that you too could be unknowingly under the influence of bias is absolutely critical to, to Participating in public discourse about important public issues.
1: I think about uh, uh, Why people get so angry um, About politics uh, like particularly politics. It's such a it becomes such a heated thing that you're actually um, I, I think in Canada uh, and elsewhere You're just kind of you know, you never talk about it. You don't discuss religion or you don't t- discuss politics and I think there's a, a like, my, my theory, I think, actually has to do with object permanency. And it kind of a roundabout way. Um, it's because, like, at essence, when we are having a dialogue with one another, we're talking about what's going on, which relies on us to go, here's my understanding of the world as, as information has come to me, and I have to make that statement publicly now by engaging in that dialogue. Um, and that could include what do we do about it. So what's going on with the environment and, and the, like, you know, like greenhouse gases and global warming. Um, and that will depend on your media dialogue, It'll depend on where you got that information from. It will depend on your, your background and your, uh, your your kind of ideology, your tool set for understanding and decoding the world around you. And if someone goes, no, you're wrong what they wind up doing is it's a bit like gaslighting because you're you're rejecting their sense of reality their sense making of the world and you're going no it's actually this and what you're doing is you're pushing instead of pulling you're pushing your worldview onto them by going no your understanding of reality is wrong and i think again that's where people are are so think of it as like object permanency where it's like if it's not absolutely real and you, and you know it is um you just you have to trust that that's what it is out there and so when you're Taking that away from somebody, it's a jarring experience. Mm-hmm. And so it's like I saw so like I described it, it's like object permanency for adults, right? It's like having a constructive disagreement, it's hard. We're not nor born naturally with that skill. It's something we gotta actually like, you know, like literacy and driving. We gotta train and we gotta practice it. How could how do we clean up, I guess, the the polluted public discourse?
0: Yeah. So so for me, what and and this was part of a you know, me realizing these things, like I'm a, you know, I'm a long, long time public relations person, you know, I had the biggest PR firm in BC for, you know, 15 years or so. And so I'm in involved in public communications for most of the, you know, most of the universities and hospitals and government levels of government, I've worked for them on on crisis and issues. And, And so I'm really involved in, disseminating information, developing messages, trying to be more persuasive. So that was my tendency going into this. And what I realized as I was going through this process was that the problem is with this, what Dan Gahan called the social pathology of cultural cognition or these this, this kind of us versus them way of thinking about the world, right? Um, is that when you sort of drive it to a certain extreme, and it's a mistake to think <clears throat> that Americans are like way, way crazier than we are because we're a little bit quieter about how crazy we are, but we we have some crazy social dynamics in Canada that are very much like the kind of crazy stuff you see going on in, in the States. So it's not that we're that different in in my view. But what it, what I realized was that the problem is, we don't even have the space to have the debate. There isn't the public space to have the conversation. And so in order to actually, in order to um, start to move towards doing something about polluted public discourse, you basically have to understand that what you're trying to do is create the space for the conversation you're not necessarily trying to have the conversation first you have to find a place so it's almost like you're out in a blizzard and it's freezing cold and you can only think about trying to stop from freezing to death you got to find a place where you can sit down in like the nice warm living room and everybody feels comfortable and you can start to think and talk right so that space for the conversation doesn't exist when when the polarization is this high it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how big my facts are. And so this, you, it's a mistake to take my f- facts and my science and turn them into a weapon, just as it's a mistake to take whatever feelings that you have about my science and evidence. Maybe it's that I'm trying to make you do things you don't want to do, or you know, I seem to be an advocate for big government or whatever. And you, you you want to fight back. And so you're trying to do everything you possibly can not to give me any ground on whatever it is I'm saying. So that sort of thing, that kind of, that essentially eliminates, there's no space. There is no conversation. I can keep giving you facts and I do it in a way that, uh, that I'm using them like a club, you know, and assuming that you're kind of an idiot because you're not listening, not a good idea. Right. So, so I'm
1: hearing both a, a a kind of approach and an actual space and and whether that's a physical space. I mean, we don't have like a public yeah. forum no. um, for this stuff. And if you go in there, how do we know that, you know, participants are even going to behave in good faith?
0: Yeah. And so so for me, the thing that's the, one of the reasons I started interviewing people like the Dalai Lama was um and Thich Nhat Hanh and people like that, was that this whole idea of c- compassion and empathy, all of that is not, you know, let me explain how can you, you can be like a weaker person and be dominated by somebody who's dead wrong. It's more, how do you recreate this space? You know, how do you create the space? So part of it is in a, in a very simple way is becoming better listeners. That, like I always thought as a communications person in the early days, that it, how articulate you were, how focused your message was, you know, the fidelity of your message and all the techniques for communication, that that was my interest. What I learned as time went on, particularly when I wrote this book, is that communication basically starts with listening. If I can convince you that I'm actually interested in what it is you have to say and that i respect you even though you may and and i hear you and you feel like i'm genuine if 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 i can do that through listening then i'm beginning to open up that space where we may just be able to have a conversation and so that's the kind of thing that i'm talking about and it's it's a, it's like a um it's not like somebody who's denying climate change a lot of these guys and, and, and I'm not talking about like the real Darth Vader types. I'm just talking about your normal, most people, right? Most people are, you know, they're maybe not going to change their mind, you know, like that, just cause you give them a fact, but they might, they could, I had a guy who was, uh, uh, I was on a, I had a book club. There was four of us and three of the people in this book club were ex department heads of philosophy at universities. They are all retired, right? And I'm, in this book club, with him. they're like super smart people, and one of them <clears throat> decided that I shouldn't worry about climate change because he'd heard all these things from this guy from Victoria, who's like a climate change denier, Tim Ball, and so he's saying, "Well, Tim Ball told me this, Tim Ball," and and so I got like one of the top climate scientists to have lunch with us, and we did. And this guy is a particularly—he was the head of uh, PICS. That which I think is at UVic PIX, which is this Institute of Climate Studies. And uh, he had a conversation with this friend of mine. And it, since then, my friend totally changed his mind, did totally changed his mind. But there was never any, it was done, and this friend of mine is probably a little bit more intellectual and more willing to learn, and even though he was an older guy, because he's, you know, he's a philosopher, right? and so maybe he was a little bit, not what, said in his ways what's that no, yeah he was you would think he'd be said in his ways but but he but one of his ways was reason you know and mm. and and my friend basically had all the evidence so no that's not true this is what's going on in the oceans and so he was able to actually give him the facts give him the information but he was doing it in a way that wasn't uh, threatening right and i don't think my friend you know my friend hadn't been on television talking about it you know he's there was just a private point of view he had right anyway this it seems to me that there is a reason to like some of these people who think that climate change isn't happening are people who don't like being told what to do and so trying to give them all sorts of evidence just reconfirms their concern that you're trying to take over their brain and make them do whatever. Right. And so, so having the kind of, so part of this is emotional. I think that, that you basically have to have a listening helps you help, you know, if you're really good at it, it helps the person kind of empty their feelings as well as their thoughts. And if you're willing to not correct them every time they make a mistake and, you know, confront them when they confront you and, you know, it's that sort of set of skills of, that you, you I'm sure you know people like this, that are people who are just like really good with other people, mm. you know, they're not, they, they, they don't automatically like put the gloves on, right?
1: Like natural it, conflict mediators, very, very
0: empathetic. Yeah, yeah, people who are sort of listeners. I'm, over the years, I've been so surprised at how few of us have ever really been exposed to anything that could remotely be described as an education in, you know, citizenship, you know, like, what does it actually, what does it mean to be like a good participant? What should you expect from people? What, what should they expect from you? You know, I mean, I took political science and you now there was kind of skirting around, you know, the difference between rights and obligations and, all that sort of stuff, but there was never really, I never really felt like I had an education that sort of looked at, this is how the public square works, this is your job, you know? I mean, certainly you hear about voting, but that's only a tiny part of this whole kind of process if you care about things, right?
1: Yeah, you're right, I apologize here, I just uh, was trying to pull myself quietly a Diet Coke. Um, Yeah, I mean, I can I can speak to that a, a little bit because that was something I also noticed I actually went back to my high school teacher uh, years ago to, to ask him about this because I was always going from like, you know, this is this is some of the root solution that we can we can try to drive at to make our politics better. So like I, I worked for Elizabeth May in our 2015 campaign, volunteered with the, the BC Green Party for um, a couple of years. Um, that's how I met uh, David Suzuki the one time, which was just me to go like, oh, the nature of things. Um and uh, I'm not even sure if I got the name right I remembered it right but uh, it, I, I would go between like well if, what if we just like improve the format of the debates we were having here because I'm watching question period and I'm looking at how toxic and how like non-answery the, the question period is in, in Canadian Parliament um, so I would go to like the deputy speaker of the house it was in, in here at Guinea-Claude in Victoria at the time um, and talk with her about like, you know, what can we do to kind of change how a speaker's role works so that you're, you're mediating and moderating a debate better? Because the idea in my mind at the time was, if we change how people talk to one another, then we change the outcome of that conversation. Thinking that like, you know, the issue starts and ends at at how they talk to each other in the House of Commons and not as though there's a whole staff writing talking points in a prime minister's office that, that you know, helps dictate some of the stuff. So there's there's other root things going on, um, but to to I think have that education, we gotta be we gotta prioritize it um, and recognize we have been taking it for granted. Uh, I mean education itself has been kind of a football where you cannot. And this was you know when I went back to my um, uh, my high school teacher, I um, asked like why can't we talk about like the things that both parties get wrong? Why can not we talk about the things that all the parties seem to do? once they get into power, because we all kind of realize they're hypocrites. We all kind of realize that like on some level they don't follow through on the things they say they value. And his response was, "You can't because it's political to say that. You can't as a teacher, you can't teach it this way. And it's like, so that that got me finally on like, okay, well, here's maybe the thing I can do right now, which is focus on civics education as and frame it as group problem solving. That if civics, Is the way we come together to talk about what's going on and what to do about it and having some kind of system of group decision making then how we come together needs to be focused more it needs to be and there's so many different ways to do it i don't think it's going to be solved by a unit in grade 11 i don't think it's going to be an elective course right um i think it's going to be you know really working through and and coming up with some innovative ways of getting things to sink in on deeper levels including empathetic like you um, know, you know, empathetic reasoning and 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 uh, dialogue with one another, conflict resolution. Um, there's always a scenario of like you wind up stranded with uh, 99 other people on a tropical island. Food is no issue, but how do you go about it? Like, what do you what do you do? Like, eventually, you're going to want to come together, pool some common resources, and some of you are going to be good at some things, some of you are going to be good at other things, and who's going to make those decisions? And how do you stockpile? And how do you you know, accrue these shared resources. Do you tax people? And do you like how do you invest it? And how do you make that decisions? And I think like rather than a kind of you know flawed understanding that we have from say Thomas Hobbes, we do now have science and we do have better anthropology than in previous decades to understand how people came from hunter-gatherers where we had so much of our mental health needs nourished. Um, we had community, connection, a sense of purpose. We had cooperation. Um, I mean, you know, gradations, et cetera. But uh, then we settled into um, agricultural societies. And over that time, we had a massive increase in, in inequality because that's when private property was created and things became much more, uh, you know, regimented along that. You do that for 10,000 years. You have a whole religion, you know, all, the, all three of our ranked religions focus on things like property being like just given and and you go through that and then Thomas Hobbes is born. And then, you know, first year political science students and a lot of people who take one or two political science courses will get that. And then what they take out of that and then go back to their econ or their business things is like, well, here's how you market to people. Here's how you take advantage of people. And this is how people started. And this is how people are. And it's like, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of living with that product. And those people are, are the product and those people were voted into power and they became the consultants and they became the PR experts and they became the political leaders and the lawyers who often go on to be the politicians. And what that's done is it's given us a, a status quo, a, a current state where we have problems that are very wicked and, and uh, complex and they're coming at us and they're becoming more radical and it's we got to have a solution that'll work and that solution will need to be just as radical to the problem, proportionate to take care of the problem, um, like climate change, right? So like you have a, an iceberg and a liner, an ocean liner. Um, if you're far out, you only have to turn a couple of degrees left or right and you'll miss it by a mile. But as you get closer, you gotta turn much more radically. You got Your solution needs to be much more radical in order to meet the radical problem. The problem with that is people have a status quo bias, they don't like liberals and liberals were the ones who were right about climate change. Um, but we can't have that. And there's a whole industry of people who are maintaining that status quo bias. Right.
0: Yeah, it is tough. I started with that. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, I mean, I totally, I think it's a very good description. It's, uh, it's tough. I mean, this is, this is really tough, you know, especially if it's as bad as right. And, and I, let me tell you, 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 the people that I met as chair of Suzuki, you know, just being on the board over the years, it really seems like it is really as bad as they say it is. In fact, it's worse in, so, in many, in many cases, you know, the people, the people who I've met, who, like I, uh, one of the guys I interviewed for my book who never, I never put it in, because, but this guy is named uh, Camila Mora, and he did this study on um, when major cities around the world were gonna reach these kind of heat points, these points of uh, increase in average temperature that's sort of like a a quantum leap sort of forward where you're never gonna look back to what we had in the past. You're never never gonna have it. Like he he did this, his study that looking at status quo, like if we just keep doing what we're doing, and then what if we did, what if we tried to meet a 2% you know, uh, uh, goal and what would be the difference? And the difference was essentially the difference between driving, he said, driving down the highway at 100 kilometers an hour and hitting a brick wall at either 100 or 80. And basically, it, you're st- you know, basically, what you get is 20 years maybe. You get 20 years and then you get the unbearable heat in all these cities. So it's not going to, it's not like you can, parts of this are quite hopeless, right? Which for me, the way that, the way I went because of that was I just became angrier. You know, I just thought like the insanity of this, you know, so that, that was my whole first phase. And I think ultimately that what I've learned is that you have to pay attention to the emotional dialogue if you miss the emotional dialogue then the chance of building a bridge between you and the QAnon guy who is a friend of yours and the guy you like is pretty much it's like not there so you really need to and and actually the emotional thing is what's going on anyway Hmm. what 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 made public relations and advertising and marketing like such a you know a multi-billion dollar business coming out of the first world war was the insight that it wasn't information that was powerful in persuading people, it's emotion. And so you can't have kind of emotion by climate change deniers, you know, having a debate with information from scientists and expect scientists to actually prevail, right? So you really need to you, scientists and anyone who's an activist and wants to make the world a better place really needs to pay attention to the emotional dialogue. And it's that—not that's not, I'm talking about, don't be, I'm not talking about being angry or anything like that. I'm just talking about the to and fro of, of who you're talking to, how do they feel? And, you know, how are they making you feel? How are you making them feel? How, how do they even feel? Like, why do they think, as you said, like, why do they believe in these things? What are they concerned about? What are they worried about? What, you know, what does that, mean? you know, that conversation we tend not to have because there's so much trauma. And so the last thing you want is more. <laughs> you know, yeah, you already yeah. have them off on your mind, right?
1: Last question. What else would you like to see in a civics education?
0: <clears throat> Ooh. Hmm. Yeah, I think it goes back to this. I, I know it seems very simple, but... I think it goes back to um, the one of the guys in in my book, uh, Otto Charmer, uh, and his work on listening. Like, like, the, the, there are a lot of, d- of levels of listening, and there are, you know, and we're not good listeners, I think, generally. Uh, and being open enough to actually listen deeply to someone uh, is not necessarily something we're really comfortable with listening to the point where you can actually be generative in, in your listening, listening to the point where you can, you can even move beyond empathy and compassion, but that you can basically start to, to sort of see the complexity of, of things and see, uh, you know, where you can have conversations where the other person is feels kind of listened to and respected and, all of So I think listening, dialogue, these are areas that I think we just, we need to get better at. It's an area that I want to get better at. And, and I, I think it, so I think listening and especially deeper listening is kind of right at the heart of it.
1: Jim, um, if your mission is producing books like I'm Writing You're an Idiot, I wish you the best on your mission and look forward to uh, your next book.
0: Well, thank you so much and uh, good to get to know you and uh, hopefully meet in the future. So can you email me your address and I'll send you a copy of the new second edition.